Hello, welcome to the podcast of Chesbro Baptist Church. We're continuing in our series through 1 Peter called Behind Enemy Lines. We've just started chapter 4 this morning, and the title of the message this morning is Our Attitude Towards Suffering. Turns out Jesus had a certain type of attitude towards suffering, and we are to adapt that attitude. Please enjoy today's message. 1 Peter chapter 4 this morning, continuing in our series through the book of 1 Peter. Um, I'm going to ask you to stand respect and reverence the Word of God as we read the first five verses of 1 Peter chapter 4. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lusts of men, but to the will of God. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought in the will of the Gentiles, when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries, wherein they think it strange that ye run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you, who shall give account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. The title of the message this morning, Our Attitude Towards Suffering our attitude towards suffering. Let's pray. Dear gracious Heavenly Father, once again, we bow our heads and humbly ask that you make your presence known here this morning. May you bless the word of God and be with us, Lord. And Lord, I pray that you would uh, be with us and be with the word as it's preached. And I pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning. Give us something this morning for the, from the Word of God. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. You may be seated. Our attitude towards suffering. There was a, uh, an aspiring blacksmith. He wanted to be a blacksmith. That's what he wanted to do. This was years ago. And uh, he went to an, ex- an older, experienced blacksmith. He had a whole list of questions that he wanted to ask this blacksmith and he got off and he started asking his questions and one of the questions that this young blacksmith asked the older experienced blacksmith was, where, uh, where can I get the best anvils at? And the older blacksmith who'd been doing this job for many, many decades looked at the young man and said, um, I don't know where you buy anvils at. And the young man thought that that was really strange. This guy's been doing this job for decades and doesn't know where I can get a good anvil. And so the young blacksmith asked the older blacksmith, well, where do you get your anvils from? The older blacksmith looked at the young man and said, son, I only have one anvil and it was a gift. And then he said, you know, over my long career, I've went through hundreds and hundreds of hammers, but I've only ever needed one anvil. And so what this morning, what I want to talk about is a subject that Peter talks about through 1 Peter. He talks about it consistently, and it won't be the last time we talk about it either, and that's the subject of suffering. Um, and, and under suffering 
comes is evil, bad experiences, hardships, persecution, all that comes under the, the category of suffering. But before we get into the scripture this morning, I, I want to share one thing that'll help us when we talk about the topic of suffering. And that is the answer to the following question. Why does God allow suffering? Why does God allow suffering? And basically the two answers to this question is, is you, we can separate it into two. And one is an intellectual answer and one is an emotional answer. So let's look at the intellectual answer first. And the, the question is, why does God allow suffering? And the intellectual answer goes something like this. Well, God has an overall plan, and he will bring good out of the bad that he allows to happen to you. Uh, God's plan involves free will, allowing his creatures to have free will and preventing all suffering at the same time is impossible because if you have free will you have to deal with the consequences of free will so that's the intellectual answer and the intellectual answer you know that's that's good in one way but in another way it's not good because people can hear that and walk away unsatisfied they can hear that and what they and get them walk away from that completely unsatisfied. And, and the reason is, is the reason that they don't get any closure from the intellectual answer is because they they realize that their suffering isn't intellectual. Their suffering is emotional. When people are suffering, their suffering is emotional. And the emotional answer is totally different from the intellectual answer. Here's the emotional answer to why is there suffering. Here's the emotional answer. Trust in the Lord. That's the answer to your suffering. Trust in the Lord. That's it. And it's the best answer. It's the best answer. John 14, 1. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. Jesus said, here's a solution to your suffering, trust. You have to trust me. You have to trust me. When things are going bad in your life, you have to rely on the who of God. You have to rely on the who of God. Almost like you're in some big trust fall. You know, there was this video where these on the Internet of these people are trying to catch this guy that's doing a trust fall. And instead of falling backwards, he falls forwards and like, no, so you, you, you trust God like you're this in this big trust fall going backwards. But let me tell you, it's not a blind fall. We don't blindly trust God. We have good reason to trust God. It's not a blind trust. We have good reason to trust the Lord. But people ask the intellectual question about why is there suffering, but what they're really dealing with is an emotional struggle. Um, but you see, that's what Christianity can provide a person. Christianity can provide an emotional answer to suffering. People who turn away from God, who turn away from Jesus, and turn away from Christianity, they don't have an answer anymore. 
An atheist might turn, a person might turn away from Christianity and turn towards atheism and, uh, and say, you know, uh, I'm doing this because I, I don't believe in God because of the problem of evil. Well, you may have turned away from God because you don't, you know, because of the problem with evil and toward towards atheism. But guess what? Even as an atheist, you still got to deal with evil. Now the problem is now you don't have an answer. Now you, don't have, now you don't have an answer for your evil. You don't have a solution anymore because God is our solution. He's the answer to that problem. There are actually religions out there that say evil doesn't exist. It's all in your imagination. Man, I must have one vivid imagination then. It's like that imagination. Some of y'all might know that. But, you know, uh, 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 being Christians, we actually have the answer for evil. And that's the person of Christ. That's the plan of God. Isaiah 54, 17. No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper. And every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment shalt thou condemn. This is the uh, heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their righteousness is of me, saith the Lord. Which brings me back to the illustration of the hammer and the anvil. Sometimes hardships and sufferings and persecution can come up in our life and just feels like we're getting beat with a hammer over and over and over and over again. And it's hard and it tough, it's tough and it sucks and it will not stop. So what does God want us to do? Jesus says, I want you to be the anvil. Allow me to help you be the anvil. Eventually, that hammer is going to wear out. That hammer is going to wear out. That hammer is going to break one day. But Jesus says, I can help you be the anvil. Now we pray and we say, Lord, take this hammer away right now. I don't, I don't, I, I don't want it to keep going. I want, you, I want the hammer to stop right this very instant. And God says, listen, Jesus says, it will stop. Trust me, one day it will wear out. But I want you to be the anvil because no weapon can stand up against one of my children. Yeah. Just continue to abide through the suffering. Any Christian that goes through a long illness or a problem for an extended long time, all of a sudden that Christian wakes up one day and they ask the question, why is my faith so weak? Why is my faith so weak? It's because of the emotional problem of suffering. I don't understand, Lord. Lord, I do not understand why I'm going through this. I don't understand why this is happening to me. And what do we do? We lean on God's good character. And we have to know that, he, that he, he never promised us something different. In fact, he promised this very thing. What you're going through, that's exactly what he promised us. He didn't promise us something different. So let's get right into the scripture this morning. Verse number one. 
For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourself likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. So it turns out Jesus had a specific attitude towards suffering, had a specific attitude towards suffering. And what we're to do is we're to adopt this attitude that Jesus had. And, you know, I, I love the fact that Jesus suffered for me. I, I think about that a lot. I thank God for that a lot, that Jesus suffered for me. But now we're told, oh, there's a cross for us too. There's a cross for us too. And Jesus looks at it and says, okay, you love me? Take up your cross and follow me. And we're like, whoa, 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 wait a second, Jesus. We're talking about your cross. We're not, I don't know what I'm talking about my cross. We're talking about your cross. But he says, no, pick up your cross and follow me. What's in the plan for most of us is suffering. What's in the plan for most of us is suffering. And the problem with prosperity preaching and prosperity preachers is that they don't teach about suffering for the Christians. And so the Christian experiences suffering and they're unprepared. They're unprepared for the suffering they're meant to go through. Life is going to throw trauma at you. It's going to throw trauma at you. You will lose loved ones. You will experience hardships, medical problems, emotional problems, spiritual war war warfare, financial ruin. And what are we told to do? We are told to take on Jesus' attitude towards suffering. So here's a question this morning. What is your posture towards pain? What is your posture towards it? I'm going to give you this morning four things a mature Christian will see suffering as. A mature Christian will see suffering as, as these four things. Number one, the mature Christian sees suffering as temporary. The mature Christian sees suffering as temporary. Romans chapter 8 and verse number 18. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. 1 Peter 1, 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. This fact. That suffering is temporary is repeated over and over and over and over again in Scripture. Your suffering might be great now, but compared to what is to come, it is inconsequential. We read about this all through the Bible. Hebrews 11, what all these people have in common. They went through temporary pain to experience eternal pleasure. 2 Corinthians talks about this in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Blessed be the God and our Father, Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort those who are in any trouble with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Talks about it in James, James 1, 2, and 3. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into divers' temptations, knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. Hey, listen, brother, sister, when you're in the middle of a trial or you're in the middle through some suffering, you look to the end of that suffering. Don't look at yourself in the middle of it. Look to the end of it. 
Jesus taught this in the Beatitudes. He taught this on the Sermon on the Mount. He said blessings on the poor, blessings on the mourning, blessings on the meek, blessings on those who are in a low state that one day God will bring up to a wonderful high state. Humble yourselves and he will exalt you. Always have an attitude in suffering that this suffering is just for now. It's just for now. It's temporary. You may have a chronic illness that's with you your entire life. 80 years you've had to have this. 80 years. Really? Just 80? When you've been there 10,000 years, you're going to look back on that 80 years for what it really was. A blip. Temporary. Look at your sufferings today with the perspective of eternity. You know, you know why the mature Christian's mature? The mature Christian isn't mature because they know more Bible verses than everybody else. The mature Christian isn't mature because they're really good at not sinning. You know why the mature Christian's mature? Uh, the mature Christian is mature because of how they react to suffering. Because when you're suffering, that's when your true character will come out. Number two, a mature Christian will see suffering as fruitful. A mature Christian will see suffering as fruitful. Hebrews 12, 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. When Jesus looked at the cross, the only thing he could see was the joy on the other side of it. He looked past the cross, and all he saw was the joy that was on the other side of it, and we need to look at our suffering the same way. We need to look at our suffering the same way. Well, Brother Brad, what fruit will my suffering bring? That's that spiritual guessing game again. What fruit is my, uh, is my suffering going to bring? That's not important. It's not important. It's actually dangerous to try to figure out what the fruit is going to be. I may be lying in bed sick. Let's say I'm sick. I'm lying in bed. I can't study. I can't teach. I can't preach. I'm watching Days of Our Lives and The Price is Right because I'm at home in the middle of the day because I'm sick. And I may sit there and I may say these words and say, Lord, I don't see how any good can come of this. And you know what? That's actually the wrong thing to say. That's the wrong thing to say because why should I assume that I would even know? Who am I? Who am I that God has to tell me anything? Who am I that God has to tell me what he's going to do with my suffering? I am nobody. I just have to have faith that there is going to be fruit. Romans 8, 28, and we, know all, and we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Trust me, Christian, you may not ever see it, but there is fruit for your suffering. There is fruit for it. Trust God that there is. James 1, 4. 
but let patience have her perfect work, that ye may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. James, how do I do that? How do I do that, James? How do I let patience have its perfect work? Just keep being patient. Just keep being patient. Number three, a mature Christian will see suffering as fellowship. A mature Christian will see suffering as fellowship. Did you know that there is a fellowship in suffering? Philippians 3.10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. What is the fellowship of sufferings? What is that? Well, you know, there is, there is fellowship in sufferings. That's why we have support groups. That's why support groups exist. That's why they work. We have support groups for people that have cancer. They have support groups for spouses of people who have cancer. They have support groups for everybody because support groups that bring, that there's a kinship in shared suffering. There's a, there's a kinship in that. But you know, when I suffer because I'm persecuted for Christ, you know what that does? That draws me closer to Christ because he was persecuted. And now I have a kinship with Christ. But not only do I have a kinship with Christ, I also have a kinship with you. We have a kinship with each other, believers. I have a kinship now because of my suffering with other believers that I normally wouldn't have had. Number four, a mature Christian will see suffering as an opportunity to cease your sin. An opportunity to cease your sin. Let's look back at our scripture this morning, 1 Peter 4, 1 and 2. For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin, that he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Have you ever noticed that seasons of pain are often or more often than not also seasons of purity? Seasons of pain are often seasons of purity. I don't know why. I don't know why that is. Maybe we think that if, we're, if, we're, if we do right, our pain will go way faster. I, I don't know what the reason is, but, but that's usually the way it is. A season of pain is a season of purity. There's a missionary. This missionary was in a foreign field, and, and his church, he had, a, he had some people come into his church, but his church is wasn't doing that good. It's, it's like people in his church didn't get it. Not only that, but the community was very, uh, the community was, was very against this church. In fact, one week he came of the church and, and all the cars in the parking lot had been vandalized and all the windows had been smashed in. The very next week he showed up to the church and it's a good thing he did because somebody had just set fire to it and he had to play firefighter when he got to church that day. And just constant over and over, the community would persecute this church and, and vandalize this church and just do bad things to this church. And it got so bad that many of his members left. But something happened to the members that stayed. To the members that stayed, they were drawn closer together. And the members that stayed, they actually became faithful. And it started to click with them what they were doing. 
And it turns out that there was a purity that came from persecution. The hardest times in our lives are more often than not the most spiritual time in our times in our lives. Um, it's in these times a mature Christian will never spend so much time seeking God than during these times. A mature Christian will never spend so much time in prayer than during these times. Never, uh, sin never looks so foolish than when a, a mature Christian is experiencing hardship. And guess what? The purification that comes from suffering is its own fruit. That is a good fruit too. Let's read verse 1 and 2 again. For as much then as Christ has suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that hath suffered in the flesh hath ceased from sin. That he no longer should live the rest of his time in the flesh to the lust of men, but to the will of God. Let's talk about Jacob for a second. Jacob is over here with Laban, and Laban has been tricking him, and Laban has been lying to him. Well, Jacob's a trickster himself. He got what was coming to him, but uh, Jacob's been, uh, Laban's been lying to him and, and tricking him, and, and finally Jacob just couldn't take it anymore, and Jacob gathers his stuff up, and he leaves, and, and Laban is pretty mad about this, and Laban starts to following him. Well, then Esau finds out that Jacob's coming, and Esau's coming to Jacob, and we know what Jacob did to Esau. And so one night, it came the one night that Jacob had Esau coming from this end. He had Laban coming from this end. He was between a rock and a hard place. He was up all night and he's trying to figure out what in the world he was going to do. He, quit, he couldn't cop, stop thinking about his situation. And wouldn't you know, that was the night he met God. That was the night he met God. In fact, that was the night of the first Royal Rumble. We had Jacob and Jesus wrestling, going at it. Jacob had Jesus in a labelle lock and said, look, I am not going to let you go until you bless me. I am not going to let you go until you bless me. And Jesus reached over and touched his hip and crippled him. Jacob was crippled for the rest of his life. And that's when Jacob's name became Israel. And if Jacob had not been between a rock and a hard place, he'd have never met Jesus. He'd have never surrendered to Jesus. In the midst of suffering, God's will becomes my goal. God's will becomes my goal. Let's look at verse number three. For the time past of our life may suffice us to have wrought the will of the Gentiles when we walked in lasciviousness, lusts, excessive wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. Know what he's saying? He's saying, look, you've spent enough time doing the will of the Gentiles, Okay. We did enough of that when we were lost. Who exactly is he talking to here? He's talking to converts. In the early church, there were no people who were born Christians. They were all converts. Let's look at the church today. What are we today? Converts. Nobody in here that's born Christians either. We're all converts. So what does that mean? That means we all have a past. We all have regrets. Where I look back and I say, man, that was so stupid. I am so ashamed of what I did. I wish I hadn't have done that. But you know what a lot of Christians do is they look back on their, the bad things that they did in their past and they actually glorify it. They actually tout it as good. And, you know, look, 
if you've got a testimony that can help someone, I'm, that's, that's fine with me. That's a good thing. If you've got a testimony that can help someone, I'm all for that. But don't boast about it. Don't be proud of it. Sometimes, sometimes people get up that have a, that have a hard time and uh, that had a hard time getting over alcohol and now they're saved and, and now they want to give their testimony. Y'all think y'all were drunks. Let me tell you what I did. Like they're proud of it. And we have this idea that if we don't go out in the world and live like hell, that we'll never be able to help anybody later. And that is nonsense. God, would 10,000 times you never go that far in the first place. So don't use the excuse, well, I'm doing this where I can help other people later. Nonsense. That's garbage. But then you have people that have done bad things and regrets. And they stand up and give their testimony and they're like, oh, it was so shameful. I wish I hadn't have done this. In fact, I wouldn't even be telling you now if I didn't think it would help you. That's the attitude you should have. We all have pasts and we all have regrets, but now don't be proud about it. Don't boast about it. Be ashamed of it. Be glad Jesus saved you out of it. Then you can use your testimony to help other people. For times past in our lives suffice us who have wrought uh, the will of the Gentiles. When we walked in lasciviousness, uh, lust, excess of wine, revelings, banquetings, and abominable idolatries. So let's go through this list. Lasciviousness. Uh, what that is, is this is a general attitude of being okay with sin. I am okay with sin. It means unbridled lust and shamelessness. That's what it means. Um, this is someone who sins out in the open and they don't care who sees it because they're okay with it. Lasciviousness is Miley Cyrus, okay? Um, I'm going to indulge in lust, and I don't care who sees it. And that is certainly the world of the Gentiles. Now, lust, next is lust. And lust is just means strong desire. And, and, and when we lust, we're motivated by the flesh. The flesh is what motivates us. Like I said, the word here just means desires, but it's specifically talking about the desires of the flesh. And, and, and it ain't got to be just even to some sinful thing. It can be a good thing. For instance, when somebody gets up and preaches, what's their motivation for it? Does a person get up and preach because they say, I want to be seen of people? Or they get up and say, I've got a calling. I'm going to do the calling of God in my life. See, it's, all about, it's, 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 it's not about what you're doing, but why you're doing it. What is your motivation behind it? Next is excess of wine. So this, this in essence, is drunkenness, okay? Um, when you have excess of wine, you are under the influence. You are under an influence. You cannot be filled with the Spirit and influenced by drugs or, or alcohol or pot at the same time. We talked about it Wednesday night. Now, the power was out Wednesday, and we had church over at Brother Charles. Uh, Brother, Brother Charles. Uh, Brother Mike and Miss Charles's house, and uh, we had a man. We had a good time. We man, we had a really, really good time Wednesday night. But you know, we talked about this a little bit. 
And I said, you know, the Bible, the Bible tells us to use a little alcohol for the stomach's sake. So these, these things that God has given us, like alcohol and marijuana and Vicodin, for medicinal purposes, they're okay. All right, so you say, oh, well, all marijuana is bad. Okay, well, let me ask you this. Uh, a parent comes up to you and says, the oil from that marijuana plant helps my kid not have seizures. It helps my child's autism. Are you then going to tell that parent that that's a sin and they need to stop? God gave us these things, all these things that God gives us for a reason. It's when they're abused, they turn bad. It's when they are abused. And the easiest thing to abuse is alcohol, okay? Um, I'm sorry. I just, I, I, I practiced, I've made this joke before and, and something y'all, maybe y'all are from Louisiana, uh, but I'm from Mississippi and we got to go to a special, special store to get hard liquor. And you come down here and you get in the dollar general. I'm like, what? I'm like, I couldn't believe that. I walked in the dollar store. I'm like, what is going on up in here? You know, it just, it just blows my mind. But, you know, the Bible is against drunkenness of any kind, no matter what you're using. It may be alcohol. It may be pot. It may be drugs, pills. The Bible is against that. Next, revelings and banquetings. Now, these words are hard to separate because they simply, essentially means the same thing. It's a big drinking party. Now, on the one hand, it, sometimes this would mean like these I idolatry parties with drinking and orgies and things like that. But you know what it can also mean? It could also mean partying like a certain night of the week, like partying like it's Friday night and I don't have to work in the morning. Okay. And you know, in, in, in our culture, what we're doing is we're starting to call back to Roman culture and we're starting to say, Hmm, maybe that wasn't so bad of an idea. And now we have these raves and parties and clubs and, you know, what the world, family reunions, <laughs> but, you know, what the world calls a party isn't about getting together and having fun with your friends. That's not what it's about. You know what these parties are really about? These parties are really about the sin that's brought in. And that becomes the focus. The focus is the sin that's brought into the party. You know, how boring are you that you need to have alcohol to have fun? How boring of a person are you? Next, it says abominable idolatry. So this in America, for the most part, we can look and say, ah, okay, we don't do that. For the most part, we don't do the whole idol thing. But you know what we do? Do? I try not to say that in front of my children because they always laugh. You know what you do do? And like, ah, he said do do. But you know what you, we, we do in America is what we've done is we've ditched the idols, but we kept what they stand for. Like these Gentiles, they had gods of wine, gods of money, gods of lust, gods of gambling. And we've ditched those idols, but we kept what those idols stood for. And now that's become our idol. Because it's all about what I want. And that's covetousness. And did you know covetousness is idolatry? 
Colossians 3.5, Mortify therefore your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness, which is idolatry. You want to know why covetousness is, is idolatry? Because it's all about what I want. That's why it's idolatry. And in verse 3, Peter said, look, you've spent enough time living your life like that. You have spent and you have wasted enough of your life. You've thrown away enough of your life to that junk. Philippians 3, 8. Yea, doubtless I count all things lost for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. And do count them but dung that I may win Christ. It's the dung verse. You know, where all this stuff, how in the world can you, can you, hold on to God, but at the same time, hold on to your old life. You, you can't do it. You can't serve God and have one hand hanging on to that old life that you were saved out of and that old life that you were redeemed out of, that he purchased you out of. You have to let that go. You have to let it go. Paul said, all that stuff in my old life, I counted as dung. Verse number four, wherein they think it strange that you run not with them to the same excess of riot, speaking evil of you. The world is going to see me and you go against the flow and they're going to call us weirdos. They're going to call us weirdos. You know, there's this thing in the world called a mob mentality, a mob mentality, and it usually happens in a riot. When people who wouldn't normally break a store window and steal stuff will, because everybody else is doing it and get away with it, it's, it's mob mentality. And the word excess of riot, the word excess, in this verse it means a waste, okay? When you overfill something to the point it overflows and that excess goes onto the ground, it's, it's, it's a waste and it's useless. And, and they look at us strange because we're going against the flow. But guess what? We're looking at them like they're strange. Like they're the ones who don't get it. When a child of God makes the commitment that they will save themselves for marriage, the world looks at that and says, that's strange. It's supposed to be normal. But you got that mob riot mental mentality. Today, you are expected to sleep around. You have to have multiple partners before you get locked in for life. As long as it's two consenting adults, nothing, out matter, nothing, nothing else matters, that's foolishness. It's foolishness. You may very well get laughed at and mocked for not cussing. You don't think at my shop I want to cuss some people. You don't think I want to do that. You don't think I just want to rear back and let some people have it sometimes? But I don't. Because listen, as a Christian, at some point, you have to grow beyond that. Me and you may very well get laughed at for staying pure for marriage. Me and you may very well get laughed at and mocked for caring about what is good. Me and you may very well get laughed at and mocked for going to church on Sunday. Me and you may very well get laughed at and mocked for not lying and for not cheating because the world thinks it's strange that we don't do these things. 
But the thing is, is when you, uh, you don't do it on purpose. You don't draw attention to yourself on purpose. It just happens. But when you unknowingly draw this sort of attention to yourself, then you know you're doing the right thing. Then you know you're doing the right thing. You know you are on the right path. Then finally, verse 5. Who shall give an account to him that is ready to judge the quick and the dead. So the person ridiculing me will one day stand before a God that will judge them. But you know what? I don't want them to. I don't want them to do that. I don't want them to stand before God's judgment. I want them to, I want to share Christ with them. I want to give them the gospel where they don't have to go through that. But for those who reject the gospel, one day they will see how foolish they have been. Even if they've lived a good life by the world's rules, their life will be a waste. What the quick and the dead means? The quick and the dead means those alive and those in the grave. They will all see God's judgment. When Jesus does come, will you be ready for him? I'm going to end today with three questions. Question number one, will your soul be ready? Are you saved? Have you come to that one time in your life where you came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and you put your faith in Christ and Christ alone to take you to heaven. Not Christ plus works, not Christ plus baptism, not Christ plus tongues, not Christ plus anything else. You Just put your faith in him. Have you done that? Is your soul ready? My next question is, is your spirit ready to sin? Is your spirit ready to sin? Have you been doing his will? Or have you been doing your own will, Christian? Have you been living your own life? Oh, that's the big thing. Live your best life. Well, you know, if I live my best life now, then I can't live my best life later in heaven because that's my best life. Is your spirit ready? Have you been prepared? Are you? I'm not. Look, Christian, I am not telling you you have to surrender the ministry. I am not telling you you have to go and be a missionary to, be, to, to, to live a life uh, for Jesus. I'm not telling you that. I'm telling you when you go to work, when you go to school, when you go to the grocery store, when you go to the bank, everything you do, you do it to please Jesus Christ in everything that you do. Then I have a third question. Are you suffering today? Are you suffering? I want, I want to tell you this morning. I want you to know your suffering is temporary. That hammer is going to wear out. I want you to know that your suffering is fruitful. You might not ever see it, but if the only fruit is you're, you draw closer to God, that's enough. Your suffering will bring fellowship. Your suffering will bring fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. And your suffering will bring fellowship with Jesus himself. And your suffering is an opportunity for purity. It is an opportunity for you to cleanse your life of all the bad things, of all the sin. And once again, it's all about getting closer to Jesus. And you know what? No one knows better what you're going through than Jesus.
because no one suffered as bad as he suffered. Be the anvil. I promise you, I promise you, one day the hammer is going to break.